Well, a warm welcome back to yet another Hound Hall podcast. And this week, we've got a really special guest, Martin Hartley, photographer and polar explorer. Ken Haddo once suggested that he's bomb-proof in a polar environment, so I think that pretty much says it all. Keep those lovely comments coming in, and remember to like and subscribe on your chosen platform, and you know the rest. If it's all done, then sit back, relax, and enjoy. Well, yeah, well, it depends who I'm talking to. Some people are saying I'm a polar photographer, some people... Uh, I don't want to use the word explorer, because that's a marketing term nowadays, but sometimes but, you have to use that. But do you... Is there a truth to that in the sense of you don't actually explore? You would go with clients or do you do your own where well, you're just out there on your own as well? Uh, no, I, I I can tick all the boxes of what it, what, what how to qualify for an explorer, which is going to a new place that no one has been before and bringing back new data. That's what an explorer does. An explorer doesn't go on a camping holiday to the South Pole and back on a known route. That's just... Adventuring. That's what you do in the South Pole. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can, do, you can do that in the North Pole as well. But. <laughs> I heard you, you made a comment that there was a couple of buildings now in the South Pole. So I suppose for you, that must be like a built up area. Right? Well, it's the world's uh, most southerly industrial estate in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, data. What data are you collecting? What would you, what, 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 what historically would you go out to collect? Um, well, when I first went away, in 1999 to the eastern Pamirs, I went to a mountain range that no westerners had been to because it was the Iron Curtain had lifted not long before and getting permits to this mountain range which was on the border between China and Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan no one had visited that visit, visited that region because it was so politically sensitive so we went there to um, do a bit of mapping of the area um, meet some um, and hopefully meet some nomads who hadn't met westerners before wow which was really? an amazing interaction. Mm. That's incredible. Um, disappointing, they just assumed we were American. <laughs> <laughs> when I went to Rotherham, they called me a Cockney. Is that all they called yeah. you? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I can't repeat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where's Rotherham? I've heard of that. <laughs> I'm not a Cockney. <laughs> but sorry, carry on. Um, so, yeah, we went there to, to, to um, bring back uh, more knowledge of that very specific mountain range, which was... And we climbed some mountains that no one had climbed before, which was a, an incredible feeling to put footprints where no one has before. That really is groundbreaking, isn't it? First, first steps, yeah, first proper first, exploration. Well, first ascents, and back that was back in 1999. So um, there's no such thing as social media then. I think the word blog might might have been floating around. So mm. there was none of this um, fanfare of uh, trying to. Anyway, we just went out there and came back more or less under the radar, So, mm. which is, I quite like doing that. <laughs> yeah. Do, do, do you like the social media? Do you like advertising it? Um, not really, but it's, it's a kind of, it's, a necess- it's part of the modern world now. So you, mm. you, you, your responsibility is to tell people we're going as far and, and reach a far and wide and diverse audience as possible. So mm. it is, yeah, I embrace it um, when I'm on expeditions and, tell people where I am and make the expedition live and try and have as much interaction with people as possible to that this, whatever story we're telling gets told far and wide. So it is, it is a, a necessary evil nowadays. Yeah, yeah. So this is where I do my little intro, mm-hmm. just as, we've warm, as we're warming up, and I can say to everyone this is Martin Hartley, 
polar explorer and mm -hmm. photographer. Would mm -hmm. that pretty much encapsulate everything you do? Mm -hmm. So, simple question: Where did it start? Where, where did the photography start? Go back, you know, to the beginning, just because I think most people that are listening to this are probably not going to have any idea, and you've got an amazing story to tell. So, I just want to, you know, get a broad idea, and then we can go into some of those amazing stories, which I know you've got loads of. So, okay, what got you into photography first? Uh, well, I was, I think I was five or six years old, and um, I was given an adventure kit for Christmas. Yeah. And in that, there was um, a compass, a water bottle with a sort of bit of army webbing and a shoulder strap kind of a thing. Um, there's a pen knife, which had been taken out because my parents thought I'd hurt myself with it. <laughs> and there was a, a most exciting part. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and there was a plastic camera in there with um, a black and white film that had 12 exposures on. Yeah. And I didn't really... No. For, for the layman like me, that's the ability to take 12 pictures. 12 pictures, you, yes, yeah. on film. <laughs> and then you get prints back. So I didn't realise what I was doing. I just I just photographed. It was just a fun thing to do. Photographed my sister and her friend skipping in their driveway. Mm. And I took 12 pictures of that. Uh, put the camera down when I got home. Didn't really think about anything else. Thought that, that was that toy done. And then a, a couple of weeks later, my mum said, oh, here's your photographs of your your sister and Claire skipping and I just thought it was incredible that it's just like magic I'd gone a step back in time because I'd taken the pictures and I had a memory of that and then all of a sudden it had just and they're back in front my god that's exactly how it happened because when you take a picture and you nowadays it's different but back then there was a time delay between taking the picture and seeing it so it was like a bit of magic for me and have you still got those pictures no I haven't no wish I had I mean, I know it's a long time to keep stuff, and most yeah. people don't, but, yeah, that would have yeah. been quite cool. It would have been quite cool, yeah. Mm. But no, I don't have those. Or the no. camera, sadly. Sure. <clears throat> um, and then I didn't really engage with photography that much because I was hell-bent on being James Herriot when I was little. Right. Um, and then I didn't even know photography was a job. I thought, you know, I thought... I thought photographers only took wedding pictures or pet photographs or... Uh, family shift photographs. I didn't realise that all the photographs that appeared in magazines were taken by a photographer. I thought they were taken by people who just happened to have cameras and were in that spot at the time. Right, okay. So I didn't really know that photography was a job um, until um, I was 15 years old and I came runner-up in Young Wildlife Photographer of the Year competition. It was quite a big competition then. And it was my dad s suggested, why don't you be a photographer then? Because I was about to um, start A-levels and then it was quite obvious I didn't have the, the right kind of brain cells to be a vet. What, what do you think he suggested to be a photographer? You'd obviously made some noises about it from taking the pictures of, you know, sister and mate through to then. Or yeah, because he gave me his old SLR cameras, you know, the old-fashioned cameras that have a mirror that bounces up and down. And yes. You put film in. Yeah. Um, he gave me his old cameras because he was a really keen photographer. Okay. So I got his throwaways, as it were. And I was really interested in photography. Um, so that, then I went to Bournemouth and Poole College of Art and Design. Um uh, that's where I met. met some good people there. Yeah, I did, yeah. <laughs> One of them you know did very you well. Benita there? Yeah, I met Benita there, yeah. <laughs> She's, yeah. Um, <laughs> cracky. I don't even know how, how long ago was that. 
Time flies. Oh my god. Time anyway, that flies. was back in the day. Yes. Before, so I went to art college to be a photographer, um, not knowing really what I wanted to do at the end of it, except take photographs of things. Yeah. Didn't really know. Okay, so there's a love of photography, mm. obviously, because mm. they're doing the course. But whether we do fashion, cars, portraits, mm. whatever, you don't know. No. No. So you've done Bournemouth. Yep. You've come out. You're yep. a photographer on paper. <laughs> yeah. Where'd you go? So I, I got a job straight away, luckily enough, working as a scientific photographer uh, up in Warrington for British Nuclear Fuels and the United Kingdom Atomic Energy Authority, which sounds very glamorous. Um, it was very technical, but quite boring. Um, after eight months, I was bored to tears of photographing experiments that had gone wrong, which is what I did. <laughs> uh, was that where things exploded and there's sort of body parts everywhere? Or? Well, there's a bit of that, yeah. Was it, oh, was yeah, it really? Oh, yeah, I'm yeah. kidding. Wow, yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. Um, I shouldn't laugh then. No. no. Um, so that wasn't very engaging to me. And then, then what happened? Oh, yes, then I went, I've read about this guy in London who was doing special effects photography, which is, I was always interested in the technical side of photography. So I pestered him for a few months and then I started assisting him at a company called Graphic Eye and I was doing all sorts of incredible special effects. This is all before the word Photoshop had been coined or the word internet or the word um, Apple computers. Yeah. That's how long ago it was. So we're almost back in the analogue days. Yeah, it was all back. Yeah, it was everything was done on film, transparent film or negative film or printed in the darkroom and retouched with an airbrush or a paintbrush. Mm. Um, all that kind of stuff. Do you think there's more skill involved back then in the fact that you, in, and, I, and I'm not a photographer, so I'm a complete layman, but that you're looking at something through your camera, you know, you're, you're, you're clicking, taking the shot. You can't then look at it and go, ooh, actually, I'll take that again. Or So do you think there was a lot more, uh, I say skill, as in care and preparation before pressing the button? Well, I, I feel really sorry for photographers nowadays who've never used film or processed film or made their own prints because there's a craft to that and that is part of photography and that is a part of thinking and a part of learning about the process of taking a photograph isn't just appearing with your camera there's lots happens after you've taken the picture and that's a really important process you don't i think that really adds to i think (laughs) if i'm going to be super opinionated i would say the best photographers are the ones that can shoot on film who know the technical side who can get an exposure accurate without checking it on the back of the camera and looking at the histogram and changing it. Yeah. And the good photographers have already decided what they want the picture to look like before they take it. Yes, I've read that before. Yeah. Yes, I have read that before. So you go out looking for pictures, you don't react. Yes. And I would say now it's reactive. Yeah. You take a thousand and then maybe pick a handful. Or you take one and think, oh, I'll just change this, I'll just change that. And they want, mm, that's not working, I'll do something else. Yeah. That, old, that old process of looking at Polaroids and then shooting film and then not seeing it for an hour, or in my case, maybe two or three months. Weeks, weeks or months, yeah. yeah. So that's the, the romance of that part of the, the photographic experience has died a death, mm. shooting digital. It's not really romantic at all. And the other thing is, um, those photographs are not really part... It's hard to make them part of history because I've held in my hand the photograph that was taken of Sherpa pretending on the top of Everest in 1953. And holding that actual piece of film in my hand was quite an emotional experience. Yeah. And you can't do that with digital. No, no. That's quite incredible. Mm. 
So photography aside, obviously I know you are a photographer, obviously, but talking more about the journey of leaving Bournemouth, getting into that job, taking the pictures of all the experiments that didn't go to plan, and clearly, you know, that, that, that fun wore off really quickly. What was next? Um, after, the, after the special effects photography, then um, I assisted for far too long, I think seven years. I learned a hell of a lot about lots of different parts of photography, which ultimately I didn't appreciate at the time. I thought I'd wasted seven years, but actually it was a, I learned how to photograph every situation quite well, from explosions to people to still life subjects, landscapes. Well, did you feel you had a lack of knowledge and more to learn, or was it just the fact that you thought you were bored of the job and actually I'll just just take an easy out and go and work with other people for a period? Well, well yeah, I was too scared to be a photographer, so I assisted... After I left there, I then assisted Benita and realised how much I didn't know. Um, it's always good to learn how much you don't know with other people. Yeah. So that was did that for another, God knows how long, seven years or something. And then, um, and then uh, I... How does this happen? So I met a guy called Paul Deegan, who was a writer at the time. Um and invited me to join him to an, ex an expedition to Everest um, in 1993 to celebrate the f first ascent of, Ever 40th ascent of Everest. Yes. To put a female climate on top, the first British, British woman called Rebecca Stevens. So yeah. I went on that expedition. It's my first time out of Europe, age 25. I thought, my God, that's uh, an amazing thing to travel with your camera. Yeah. I was going to say, that's a, um, that's a big step, isn't it, from, uh, you know, sort of working in Britain, doing different bits, mm. you know, regularised temperature and sort of fairly straightforward, and then you go to something that's quite extreme in comparison. Mm. How did you prepare for that? Well, was I did it largely excitement and uh, the unknown? Well, I didn't, I didn't have a clue. I was very naive, didn't know what I was doing, um, didn't really look too much too, too further ahead. Anyway, so I came back from that, didn't, and carried on doing what I was always doing in London, assisting and so on. And then Paul Deegan asked, for me up again in 1999, and asked me if I wanted to go on an expedition to the Zelensky Kribet in Eastern Pamirs in Russia. No Westerners had visit, visited the area. Wow. Um, so hold I, on, there's a gap there, isn't there? There's a few years in between there. Yeah, so I was assisting there um, yeah. and working in Cotswold Outdoor. Yeah. And okay, so no, the <clears> point <throat> being, though, that um, you, you're not... Because uh, I just want to paint a picture to people who, mm. you know, literally are going to learn, you know, stuff through hopefully listening to mm. this. That, uh, you know, for me, it's like conditioning, certainly for these extreme things. And once you've done one, then you hope you do another, another, and you condition and, you know, build up to be, you know, whatever that thing is. But you've literally done the big, you know, trip out there for the 40th, the, the 40th anniversary. anniversary. Yeah. yeah. But then you've had a few years back in Blighty. Um, oh, yeah. So, so going on, on the background. But, but not to go into detail on that. And yeah. then you've gone back out there X years later. You know, was that a bit of a shock to the system? Or, oh, I've done this before. I remember this. And Well, in the background, going on was stuff not related to, to photography. Even though I travelled with my camera, it was going climbing in, uh, in Scotland in the winter and then climbing in the Alps in the summer and then going to the Alps in the winter. Um, so still rock, keeping this travel. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So travelling and climbing and doing winter mountaineering. Um, and Scottish winter mountaineering and rock climbing. So all those things give you skills to be independent when you're travelling with a group of people. Um, so going away to 
southeast Russia, what was Russia, to go and climb on some mountains that no one had been on before, I couldn't possibly say no to that no. invitation. Didn't have any money, so I sold everything I had, sold all my darkroom equipment, sold all my camera equipment, <laughs> hoping I'd get a camera sponsor. Um, I think that's I, commitment. Yeah, so I think I generated about £2,000, which all went towards the flight costs and the food costs for the expedition. And then we landed a sponsor two weeks before the expedition oh. left, which is great, because then I got my 2,000 quid back in the bank, and then I found a camera sponsor, Mamiya Cameras at the time, so they gave me all the kit I needed. Fabulous. Which is brilliant. And I went away uh, on that journey and came back completely committed to using expeditions as a way to make, not to make money, but to pay my way to travel. Right. Because when sponsors ask, so this is how I became a adventure photographer. Say, so that sort of sounds like the sort of turning point then. Yeah. You've almost found your groove and yeah, you know, your passion of photography and then you found a way to fund the move and everything's sort of sinking together. So Yeah, yeah. so I've got all the outdoor experience, all the climbing skills and all the uh, remote travel skills that you need. As a photographer, or, any, or to go away from the the arm of safety, um, and I realised that when sponsors sponsors uh, companies corporations need vehicles to make them look good or better than they are, or improve their um, their public face, um, and some sponsors actually want to do good to. The world and give something back so they'll pay for an expedition to go away and do something interesting or do some research um, and that'll make their clients feel better about buying their products because they've attached themselves to something that's yeah. of value to them yeah. and society in general so that's how I got into expedition photography as a as part of my business plan if you like mm. so they they'll pay me to go away take pictures for them mm. when actual facts I'm taking pictures for them and for me and for the greater good of of whatever happens when I'm long gone. <laughs> yes, and you have got some amazing pictures, <laughs> and they really are incredible. Mm. So now you're established. You you've got the funding. You've got the work. What's the so? Is it just a case of when you're in these, you know, what I'm going to class as remote locations? Um, where's the inspiration for your pictures? Because obviously for your client, you've got a, you know, I assume a bit of a sort of a, a plan, mm. right? But then you're looking for your own stuff. Now, this is where I get really interested because, so I just, again, just for listeners, paint a picture and please correct me if I'm wrong because this is all really new to me. Mm. Conditions out there, temperature. So, you know, compared to here, your coldest winter here, say in Herefordshire or something like that. Say the absolute coldest it's ever been. What what are people going to have experienced? Minus five here, minus six, maybe up to minus ten. Mm. But you know, maybe an extreme in Scotland. But largely, what would you say? Minus five, minus six. Yeah, minus minus ten. I suppose minus. Up to, yeah, say yeah. up to minus ten. Mm. Then yeah. you're going out to these locations. What's your average temperature out there? Well, average temperature on a North Pole expedition is probably, well, the coldest it gets has been, it's been minus 55 Celsius, and you chuck a bit of wind on top of that, and then it, the wind chill factor can bring it down to, I think the coldest I've ever been was minus 79 Celsius. Minus 79. But cold is cold. You know, I've been freezing my bollocks off at the bus stop in Rochdale in November, because I'm not dressed for it. Yes. People go out 
out of their homes, um, uh, not prepared for cold or rain or wind or all those things combined. So, do, do you think there's a point then when you get cold, you're just cold and that's it? And you can't go, oh, I'd rather be <coughs> minus five than minus. Because that to me just sounds like laying in a freezer with a cold fan on at times after. <laughs> uh, I can't comprehend that cold. Well, when you're, when you've, uh, when you're on an expedition and you're waking up every day and it's minus 40, because the first thing you do is check the temperature outside and there comes a point where you get really fed up of looking at the minus 40. You're just praying for minus 35 because that, for some reason in your head, minus 35 seems a lot more bearable than minus mm. 40. And then when it's minus 50 or minus 55 Celsius, then you know you're going to be cold all day, every day. I did see that clip where you, <coughs> um, and so we probably shouldn't mention the brand because I don't think it worked, but there was a jacket that had this super cutting edge of the time material inside that removes the moisture, but it was clearly made in Ireland because it did it the <laughs> other way round. And I noticed you picking up this frozen jacket and you're literally beating it to put the thing back on. Um, well, at the time, I thought there was something wrong with me because part of the skill of of um, of travelling in a very cold place is actually keeping cool, um, which I know sounds odd, because if you're if you're if you're producing heat, you're producing sweat, and that sweat goes into your clothes. And if it's cold or and or windy, then the wind chill effect is amplified tenfold. So by getting hot, you're going to really be in trouble. Yeah, because you're so, going to freeze. Yeah, so I thought I was. I must be sweating more than anyone else because all the sweat was staying next to my body. So I tried to ski slower, which didn't work. Um, and then I tried taking my jacket off so it stayed dry. So I was on the edge of hypothermia for all day. That didn't work. Um, so I didn't know what was going on. I just had to live with it. So every morning I put on this jacket that was full of ice and then the, I'd be skiing along and warm up and then the ice would melt and so I'd be wet and cold at minus 40 is not a pleasant thing to well, be that doing. hellish. Yeah it wasn't very good because then your fingers and your toes and get cold and then it's really hard to to be where you are because if you're if you're still trying to cope with where you are and you're not comfortable then you can't take photographs you can't appreciate where you are mm. so I couldn't really do my job. And then a couple of years later, um, someone turned my jacket inside out because I was going away and said, can you make something a bit like this, but uh, it needs to be breathable because, or it needs to be really breathable for me because I obviously sweat a lot when I'm exercising. Mm. And he looked at it, he said, oh my God, someone's sewn the material on the inside of the jacket the wrong way. So rather than moving moisture away from your skin, <laughs> it's pushing it back towards it. So, <laughs> so that... Um, Did you get a lawyer and sue them? Oh, no. I'd... <laughs> that sounds expensive. Uh, well, <laughs> it's done, it's finished. Not, you know, it's part yeah. of history now, so. Yeah. I'll tell you the thing I find totally amazing, and I don't need to understand what you do, because even by knowing these basic <laughs> facts, I think it's amazing. It's the fact that, and again, from a layman's perspective, you work in these extreme conditions things with like the jacket that didn't work the minus 50 60 70 whatever even with clothing that does work mm. that in itself to me is just all engrossing right and 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 for me the idea of just surviving and, and getting to where you need to get to is in itself the challenge 
How then, with that, do you combine taking, and not to big you up, but, you know, clearly, by your catalogue and, the, you know, the sort of visual history you've created, how do you then manage to find that almost extra energy and create amazing pictures? Because it's almost like, to me, it's like there's two people, there's like someone surviving, but then it's almost like you can switch that off and almost put yourself in a zone where it's all about that particular photo. How do you do that? That's a good question. Um, I'm not quite sure. Um, but I think as a, as a photographer, um, and I'm sure Ben will back me up on this, your brain, you're hardwired to take photographs. And when you see them, you want to take them, or you're looking for them. And I think on expedition, I'm at a psychological advantage to everyone else, because they're quite boring things to be on, poor expeditions. They really are, unless yeah. you're interested in navigation particularly or or the place i think we we explorers generally are interested but i think i'm at a massive psychological advantage because i've got something to do every second of every step of the way and i think if you're concentrating on what you want to be doing you can literally separate all the other problems of being cold and tired and hungry and miserable by focusing on something that is positive okay so there's always something to take a picture of. Even when there's nothing to take a picture of, there's always something, I th I think. And that is what drives me, is taking the photographs. That's why I'm there. And I do feel, you know, it might be hard on the outside looking in and thinking, oh, he's got a nice job, going on camping holidays the whole time and taking <laughs> pictures. <laughs> but the pressure to get on a North Pole exhibition costs millions of dollars yes. to get you there, to resupply you and to bring you back. And the insurance costs and travel costs to get to the edges on top the Arctic Ocean are really hundreds of thousands of dollars and so there's quite a massive responsibility on my shoulders to give the sponsors back what they expect to receive and I had a shot list of about 60 on one Arctic expedition and I missed off one group shot um, and the client wasn't interested in the fact I'd missed the one group shot they wanted to get uh, they didn't care about other pictures because they only wanted the group shot so yeah, um, so there's a, there's a massive work pressure on you when you're there to perform. But you see, this is what I mean. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, I think of someone working in the sunshine, you know, it's a bit hot, it's a bit sweaty, but you know, it's lovely, it's comfortable. <laughs> then you think of, of some, think, sorry, of someone working, say in the winter, you know, it's cold and a bit blustering, and that sort of, re re you know, restricts a little bit. You just want to get the job done and go home or whatever. But you are in, like, the ultimate extreme location and still you can switch in. I know I'm saying something similar to before, but I find that amazing. And I think that makes you quite unique. Well, I think um, what uh, you can go on a skiing trip to Antarctica to the South Pole and you have to, to anywhere, in, if you go on any expedition in Antarctica, which is the coldest place on Earth in mm. winter... What 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 um what temperature would that drop down to? Um, on a place in Antarctica called uh, uh, South Dome reached, I think it was minus ninety eight Celsius ambient a couple of years ago. Minus ninety eight Celsius ambient in winter. Well, I, don't, I, don't yeah. I mean, I, that is cold, and you can't as a human you, as a human being you cannot survive outside for too long on an expedition in those temperatures because the equipment, the materials are not made. To survive that, so. Um, but even if you go to that place at that time of the year, 
you you're not out of uh, sorry, you're not out of rescue uh, at the point of no return. Mm. Someone can come and get you in Antarctica nowadays. If you yes. if you fall over and bang your head and fall unconscious, someone's going to be watching your tracker. And if you're not moving for a certain time of the day, yeah. they'll realise you've stopped and they'll come and get you. And if they can't fly to you, they'll come with a tracking vehicle or a skidoo or, you, you know, you can get pulled out from Antarctica quite easily. Okay. And the Arctic Ocean, if you get into any kind of trouble, there's no guarantee someone can come get you in time. It might be weeks before they can no. before, the, before the weather's good enough to fly to you. Um, was that where you were? There was a story. And I, I might have got this wrong, but you were you were, were were with a group and you pulled off as a two man cluster in a boat to do something. Photos, I assume. And if it's the right term, you took a wrong turn, and you became lost, and you were stuck in a boat oh. with another. And obviously, you're here today, so you did fine. But you know, there was a point where you were lost, and it's getting dark, and it's. Yeah, oh yeah, that, that was my. That's my, super extreme. Well, that's well, that's um, my, that was my first experience of the the high Arctic. Yeah, I'd been to photograph. I'd arrived in in a place called Resolute Bay. Never been there before. Just thought Arctic cold was like. Um, I'd rather. I'd rather. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like alpine cold, and got that wrong. I arrived in this tiny little hamlet. Met a guy there called uh, Gary Guy, who was the kind of John Wayne of the Arctic. Okay. Um, and so give- superior to you at the time, maybe in, in yeah, I didn't, I didn't have a clue. It was my first yeah. time there. I just thought cold yeah. is cold. Um, yeah. I got that wrong. And he said, "Show me what clothes you've got." So I emptied my rucksack quite proudly. Here's all my winter climbing <laughs> kit. He looked at it and said, "That's not going to work." And then left the building and came back with these massive jackets and massive trousers and massive boots and massive mitts. Um, and a massive bar climb and said, put that on, that'll probably, that'll probably keep your life for longer than 10 minutes. And then we went out on two skidoos, uh, but I'd given a GPS position to go and photograph the client um, for the Times, who was 35 miles offshore, camped on some sea ice. Um, within 20 minutes, the GPS had stopped working um, because it was, it was so cold. So he said, oh, I know where they are. Well, they're over here somewhere. So I don't know how we, I don't know how we found them, but we found them eventually. 35 miles offshore, camped in the south. And there was a storm due to hit town, so they said, right, let's go back. Let's demolish the camp and go back into town. And that is the point where the two skidoos went in different directions. Ah. Um, and when those two skidoos went in different directions, we lost each other. And this was when it was minus 79 Celsius. So, so you're in one. So I was, I was... John Wayne's in the other one. John Wayne's in the one with yeah. uh, his, his other... Yeah. With with the client. Yeah. I'm on the back of my client. Right. So just just remember where you're going to carry on that story. I just want to cut in here very quickly. What's that immediate thought? Because through your mind, you're there, the temperature, the condition, everything you've just explained, and you're now lost. What's the immediate sensation? Um, what I should say <clears> is, what level of fear did you feel? Oh, my God. I was on the back of a skidoo, and Penn was driving, and I thought, there's no helicopters here. No one knows where we are. No one can come and get us because the weather's so bad and it has gone dark. Is this sorry? Is this Pen Haddo? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it was a you know it was just one of those situations where. It, um, have you heard of the incident pit? No. So when you get when you step onto the edge of an incident pit, it's a kind of downward. It's a it's 
a, a hole that's sort of uncurved in profile like that. Right. So when you're on the very edge of the incident pit, yeah. you can get out quite easily. And then it gets steeper and steeper and steeper. And then it gets vertical and then you can't get out. So we were edge on the straight away, being out there in those conditions, we're on the edge of the incident pit. And then then we got lost. So we're further into the incident pit. And it was we're losing visibility, so another step down inside the incident pit. And then we're well and truly on the edge of the bit where it goes vertical. I'm thinking, fuck, um, if we have to stay outside tonight, because we've run out of fuel and you're, do, you're you're dead. Well, I thought if if we're not dead, the next best option is we'll survive, and yeah. I'll probably have Limbs. to lose my arms up to my elbows and my <laughs> legs up to my knees because it's that cold. Because just to retrace there, this is about minus seventy nine. Yeah, I didn't know till the next day when no. we saw the weather forecast. Yeah, um, and it was minus forty eight Celsius with a. I think it was a 40 knot wind so the temperature the wind chill effect is minus 79 celsius and that does feel cold I at that point was thinking why have I come here I'm never coming here again and I was crying my eyes out and uh, this sounds like a cliche but my eyes were actually being frozen shut with the tears and I had to use my fingers to pull my eyelids back open because I was scared I thought, cry. and I had this thought I thought crack if I don't have any hands I'm never going to feel a woman's breasts again and what woman is going to want to be with the guy without hands so that made me cry a bit more <laughs> that, you know that, that that's what makes you you i'd just be thinking i'm gonna die but uh yeah my you're thinking work. you know mm, yeah that fine caress <laughs> I won't have it again. <laughs> that was the most genuine thought i had how am i gonna now well, that's I'd, a man yeah <laughs> but i thought at the same time i thought well i can probably invent some contraptions so i can still take pictures <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent there. You're sorry. <laughs> yes. So, and then Penn stopped and turned to man. me and said, um, uh, I don't know which way it is, left or right, I don't know. And it was it was an interesting um, conundrum, because if we'd gone, if we'd turned right at that point, we would have had to have gone all the way around the island to find, because the town is situated on the coast, so we'd have to go clockwise, clockwise, all the way around the island, all the way around the island. Um, and if if we'd ended up east of the town and gone anti-clockwise, we'd have to go all around all around the town. And if we'd gone west and gone the opposite direction, we would have had to do the same. So we had to go left or right and make a decision to commit. Right, who one made the decision? I said, well, I think the sun went down over there, so I think we need to go left. And what did Penn say? Okay, let's do that then. Let's do that. And then half an hour later... We hit town. And and is that why Penn Haddo came up with that wonderful quote of Martin Hartley, bomb-proof in a polar environment? It might be. I don't know. <laughs> I think that probably deserved that accolade, really, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you needed to do anything else to make the point, possibly. Nailed it there. Uh, well, you know, we were both we were both scared and we are both... Um, making bad decisions and doing the wrong things. And that's the short version of the story. There's lots of sure. things that led up to that point of left or right. Yeah. And it was a 50-50. I was just guessing, so. Yeah, I mean, incredible mental strength. I mean, I know you're not... It's thrust upon you. It's obviously not a chosen position to mm. be in, but it is uh, It is mind-bending. Yeah. Uh, but more interesting than that moment was that we had to chop off... This is, uh, this is a lesson that I learned. It was a very major schoolboy error we were towing a sledge full of food and fuel and camping equipment behind us and that sledge kept rolling over 
and the ropes get getting tangled. So we cut the sledge off, thinking we could move faster. Uh, and what we should have done was stopped, put the tent up, got inside, and waited for the storm to go, and, and gone back to town in the daylight the next day. Right. So that was an epic mistake of massive proportions okay. that we both agreed upon. Okay. Um, so the next day, uh, it was clear skies, and it had gone dark, and we'd recovered from the shock of what happened and had a few hot drinks. We had to go back out and get the sledge, and Gary Garland came and said, we have to go and get the sledge before the polar bears destroy it, if they haven't already. Who wants to come? And I was the first person to put my hand up. <laughs> <laughs> so Incredible. I think I think then I was already addicted. It's there, isn't it? Yeah, whatever yeah. happened. You I don't wanted, think I wanted it. more of that. You're out there. Mm. Um, I'm reminding myself of another story. Uh, the um, in, in, in brief, the groin strain when you were setting up a tent <laughs> that then left you alone in the tent in another extremely cold uh, scenario for was it more than forty eight hours before you were? Oh my God! Sort I of, didn't know I know rescued or. <laughs> I have done a little research, Martin. Crikey. I thought, oh. you, uh, I thought you deserved that respect. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Simon. <laughs> you ought to wait for the next one. <laughs> anyway, start with that one. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> Notice I said groin strain. Groin strain, yeah. Okay. So I would, I'd been away climbing a mountain with some friends yeah. and came back. It was about one o'clock in the morning and I helped them put their tent up uh, before, it, before I, I went back to mine that was camped out of sight of the rest of the camp because I was at, I was based at a, a very small um, campsite where people who come to, come into Antarctica would the plane would land and they would go off on their various expeditions but I put my tent out of sight of everyone else because I don't like being uh, camping in groups because <laughs> I'm antisocial like that <laughs> and I was putting up this tent and I thought oh my stomach hurts oh. I said to the guys I'm sorry I'm going to have to go and lie down because I've got really bad stomach ache um, and it was it was pretty bad. I thought, oh, I've got indigestion or something, eating something that disagrees with me. Went back to my tent, and the next morning, I it took me two hours to go from lying down to sitting up in my sleeping bag because the pain between my belly button and my knees was so bad, I couldn't move without... It's worse than a bad back. Have you ever had a bad back? Oh, it was that I, kind of back. I've had that. slip discs. I know real pain where I can't mm. I can't get up. And you can't breathe properly. No. Paint so, the picture as well. You're in a tent on your own. You are, what's the location? I was just always in, in Antarctica. Right. What's the temperature outside? Um, what's roughly? It, not cold. Maybe, maybe minus 25, minus 30. Okay. But, you know, in, 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 in Antarctica, it's dry. So it's yeah. it's like a nice kind of skiing, kind of cold okay. weather temperature. Okay. Um, so I managed to get myself out and I just had to, had to use my ski poles to get to where the, the doctor was. Uh, and there was, a, there was a big mess tent there, and I said to him, Martin, have you ever had a, a groin strain? And he said, no, why? I said, well, I've got this pain, and I sort of gestured towards my abdomen, yes. and it's not going away, and it's really, it really hurts. So I said, go in the medical tent, there's a heat one in there, um, drop your trousers, I'll be in in a minute. So I went to the medical tent, it's nice and warm, and I had dropped my trousers, and he came in, and he said, right, drop your, drop your pants. And he looked at my sort of nether regions. Yes. And looking back up, he said, when did you do this? I said, half past one this morning. And he looked at his watch and then did a bit of counting. He said, you're a fucking idiot. I'll be back in 15 minutes. Put your trousers back on. 
I didn't know what was going on. So he went away to make some calls to see if they could fly me from where I was to Rothera, which is a British base where they have a, an, an operating table. Oh, wow. Or to phone South America to see if they could bring in a Russian cargo plane called Illusion to pick me up. Because it's the only plane that can fly that distance without having to refuel. Um, and that's a $300,000 pickup. Wow. Anyway, he came back in the town and said, um, I've called Rothera, um, we can't land there because the weather's bad. Um, I've called Illusion, but they can't land here because the weather's too bad here. I said, what is it? What's happened? He said, you twisted your bollock. So oh. because it happened at half past one in the morning and he didn't come and see me, uh, we've got about 50 minutes before it turns into a, a prune, shrivels up and dies. But don't worry, you can have a prosthetic one fit and it can be bigger. Oh, that's all right then. <laughs> so, um, so I just started crying silent, hot tears down my face. Trouble is, your OCD would suggest you want a matching pair, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, oh, yes. <laughs> well, I'll have three. <laughs> Two in one side, one in the other. That would be a party trick, wouldn't it? <laughs> no um, hands, but no, look at these. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I just thought my life was over of being a man. Yes. Well, no bollocks doesn't mean I can be a man anymore. And I started crying. And he said, it's all right. We, we, we can do something here. He said, I just got need to twist it half a turn and I've got to commit to turning it one way or the other. It's <laughs> another 50-50 oh. decision. Um, you didn't ask Penn for that answer, no, did you? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, what do you want to do? I said, well, just give me all the drugs you've got and give it wow. half a twist. And so... <laughs> and he had to. I just sat here all tense. I don't know why I'm holding on to my uh, belt. <laughs> Finish the story. And he said, "But I'm, I'm, I need a witness. The only person on camp is Fran, and she was the the cook from nice. the uh, yeah." So have um, to be a lady. Yeah, have to be a lady. Okay, well, yeah. Fran can come and enjoy the show. Um, so he gave me some drugs. I don't know what they were, um, but he said you're going to be in lots of pain for a long time. So the next ten days, I was in a lot of pain. Um, but he twisted the right way and uh, yeah. it calmed. And... Yeah, he got it right, thankfully. Wow. What a magician he was, wow. is. Yeah. That's proper extreme. Yeah, it's not the place to have a problem with the bollocks, is it, in Antarctica? <laughs> it's definitely not. No. 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 I, um, I was, uh, and, and I'm, this is totally sincere now, I was really saddened to hear that you had suffered with some level of depression mm. and maybe forgive my ignorance that it might still be an ongoing thing mm. which saddened me a because i just didn't know that and secondly that i wouldn't have in a million years ever have guessed that <laughs> and i know that when we've talked in the past how can i put this call it being back in the UK you know being back at home the depression seems to sort of rear its head in one form of another to, to, to some level or another mm. okay um yet when you're in these as I mentioned earlier and I'm just going to say super extreme extreme conditions you tend to become this sort of superhuman that that just sort of can almost plow metaphorically through any situation and i thought that was rather amazing that you are 
someone who, you know, you're like the ultimate being, really. It's a back here, it's a struggle. But yet when you're out, you, you, you're almost like Superman. Yet most people, it would be the other way around. How, how is that so? What's your thoughts on that? Um, I've thought about this a lot, and I've sometimes sit back here thinking, I wish I could have that part of my brain in operation now, here. That bit where nothing's a problem, everything is doable and manageable and get-at-able and solvable. Um, and I, th I think probably, a l m not all, but most people, when you, if you were put in a... So, so what happens when you get chopped off on the, edge of the, on the edge of the Arctic Ocean or in the middle of the Arctic Ocean, wherever you have to be put down and the plane goes away, as soon as you that, you what happens is you look at the plane taking off and you just stand still, not speaking, watching it, and then you can still hear it, yeah. even though you can't see it, and then you wait for that sound to go. And when that sound is gone, you know the plane isn't coming back. And then this switch goes on in your head, a literal switch. Right. Now it's time to get not get to work, but we're on our own. And then you're in a survival situation then, because the plane can't come back. If you if I fall over in that second and bang my head and blood starts pouring out, that plane can't come get me because the pilots have used their hours and they only they only fly with 15 minutes spare fuel. So if they're circling looking for somewhere to land and they burn up at 15 minutes, they're going to go home so without 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 really yeah without putting you down. It's on the edge, isn't it? Yeah. Everything. Yeah, everything, everything is everything is absolutely critical. So the pilots allow fifteen minutes, and it usually takes them ten minutes to find a safe place to land, and then they don't turn the engines off because they may not start them again because it's usually cold when they drop you off. Anyway, so the plane's gone. You know it's not coming back. It can't come back the next day because the pilots have need to stop halfway back, need to rest and recuperate, and um, so in that moment. Um, and from that point onwards, you are. People talk uh, about being present, you know, be, and you cannot be present in this modern day and age. You can't. There's always an email to send. There's always some information coming in. He's responding to. It's, it's really difficult to be present because of so many outside influences pouring into your brain, yes. saturating it with all sorts of bad things and good things or busy things or day-to-day yes. -day modern life. You are bombarded by missiles of things that need to be done and I don't cope very well with that I get quite overwhelmed quite quickly with things that I have to do on my to-do list or new things come in or emails or just you know brown envelopes coming through the door and things like that that I found that difficult to cope with and when you're when that when that choice has been removed and all you've got is being present and solving that problem right there right then I can, for some reason, I can deal with that without any issues whatsoever. It's no matter like the, the beta blocker, isn't it? It just removes everything. It just cuts out. You hear all you're focusing on is the the next meter, the yeah. next second, yeah. the, you know, the immediate. And I think I think my brain is hardwired to cope with, um, or maybe it's just decades of being away from. Um, or having experiences where my favourite experiences are ones out in the wilderness. It might be that programming that has, I've done to my brain, or some kind of automatically, where when I don't have a choice, 
then I find it easy to find a solution. But in a sense, what's interesting is prior to being there, you do have a choice, don't you? You almost choose to be in a position where you don't have a choice. Do you think maybe you're just a loner and you know full well that you punch at your weight when you're right up against it on your own, bluntly? Yeah, maybe. There's maybe part of that. But, you know, you could, you could ask any woman that's given birth, why have you gone through the process twice when you've, you know, had quite a few mums who've nearly died and had to have an emergency cesarean because of giving birth or the pain have revolved around that? And they go back and get pregnant again and give birth again. They just I think the brain is good at forgetting trauma when you're younger and pain. I think you're very bad at remembering bad things where you're very my brain's very good at remembering um uncomfortable things that are not related to expeditions. And when I <laughs> the irony is when I'm on the ice and the plane's gone and nowadays when I go back I think Oh my God, what am I doing here again? Why have I come back here? Why am I here? <laughs> Idiots. I promised myself I'd never come back and I'm here again. Yeah. And that happens every time. But that's the spiritual draw, isn't it? It's not really, well, it's not like a, well, it is a conscious decision, but really, you know, that's your, that's your environment. Mm. Yeah. Even yeah. if initially it's a challenge, really, deep yeah. down, that's where the best you naturally once that sound of that plane disappears, you're there. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. That is, that is <laughs> yeah. sad to say, but that is the best version of myself. I know it sounds like a... No, and I don't mean that. As no, in, I know you, you don't. You know, yeah. um, you're a pain in the bum otherwise. Yeah. I mean, but Which just, I am, to most well, people. No, you're not. But <laughs> what I mean is you, you, you become your best within yourself. Yeah? Yeah. Amazing. If I could get that Martin Hartley that's on the ice to operate in that way back here... Well, I, I tell you, and I'm not a psychologist and I'm not a therapist... I suppose for me, being, you know, a bit of an idiot, I find it strange that someone with that amount of, you know, conscious or natural ability or power of control, you know, to, in effect, stay calm in such an extreme location, environment, then is so deeply affected when they come back into this environment. Now, Mm. I think most normal people would go yeah i'm sick of emails mm. i hate bloody mobile phones and actually there's this rather stupid thing that seems to rotate round where everyone's got to be busy hey mm. how you doing oh i'm really busy yeah it's like being really busy is a sign of superiority or mm. achievement when actually uh i think it's just heading towards a burnout mm. um, you don't have to be busy all the time to be successful um you can be a busy fool Yep. But I, I, it, it's, it, it is, it's saddening. And I think, how is that so? That, you know, one couldn't come back and say, well, yeah, this environment's very different. It's very tedious. It's very trivial. But you know what? I'll just box that away, put up with it for now. Because mm. in six months' time, I'm, you know, back out mm. on the ice. Yeah. Well, I, and I've, you know, I, I, it's taken me, how old am I now? 53 now. So I've, beating myself up for decades thinking I'm not, I don't feel successful. But yeah. now I've got all those experiences banked and when COVID hit, I thought, in a bit of a panic, I thought, I'm never going to take a picture ever again. I'm never going to travel ever again because I thought, when on the first lockdown, when everyone's been told to stay inside, 
I was thinking, I'm never going to travel again. Never going to go and see anything. Thank God I've done all of that travelling now. Yes. Because no one's... At the time, I thought that travel was going to be a no-no for everyone ad infinitum. Mm. Right, I'm locked in my house now. Can't go on the street to <laughs> to play, literally, or... I'd but it's, it's sad, you know, you just used two terms there. I beat myself up. Will I ever become a success? I mean, why do we need to beat ourselves up, firstly? You know, and it's all about being kind and being a hippie, but, you know, days turn into weeks, into months. We do things each day. You can't beat yourself up for, for you know, for, for one... There's so many things happening. I, mm. I, I think... I don't understand that, you know, especially for someone like you who's clearly amazing in their field. And, uh, oh, will I ever be successful? I mean, each one of your trips, even from your first trip to the, for the 40th anniversary descent or ascent, that in itself is a success. It's a success because back then, bluntly, you were, you know, an amateur. It was your first gig. Um it's a success that you actually went and did it again after that and then again and again and again. So you surely are a collection of a mass <laughs> of successes. That's how I see it. Oh. And maybe it's mm. depression or, you know, something that, 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 uh, that sadly, um, you know, shields that from you. Because I think, I'm pretty sure that anybody that listens to your story, unless they're completely stupid, <laughs> would go, Wow. That's incredible, mm. you know. And pick any one, let alone collectively. Well, maybe that's a good thing. I can't feel it or see it for myself because that just keeps me wanting to try harder and harder. Maybe that's part of the process. I get that. And I would imagine that this type of those types of environments, one is never blasé. <laughs> it is always treated probably like the first time. Mm. Um Earlier I mentioned again about the, and you've explained, but the sort of split between, um, you know, being in the, in the harsh conditions, dealing with that, but then managing to go, right, now I've found the picture, switch off that, turn and photographer mm. mind. Um, this is where I'm going to really show my lack of knowledge on photography. One of your amazing photos, with which there are a plethora, um, <laughs> is done with a something I. Mm. And I read that you stood on a ladder and put this eye thing lens on, whatever, took the picture, talked to me about that and used the proper terminology. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, I was commissioned by the Times to photograph Penn Haddo, who was preparing to be the first person to ski to the North Pole from Canada, which most people thought was impossible because when you leave Canada to ski to the North Pole, you're skiing on a conveyor belt of ice that's moving the opposite direction to where you're going. Right. That sounds like much harder work than the normal hard work of skiing. Yes. So yeah. you put you ski for 30, well, not 30 miles. Maybe in the first 30 days, you might ski a mile a day. Yeah. And after the first 30 days, you might ski 10 miles, put your tent up at 9 o'clock in the evening, and then you might drift south six miles while you're sleeping. So that's the kind of okay. problem you have to Is that face with. that the terminology one step forward and two steps back? Yes, I think so, yeah. <laughs> um, so um, Another quote from Penn Haddock. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay, I've got Penn Haddock to thank for everything regarding the Arctic. Can you, again, just for the listeners, can you just 30 seconds on Penn Haddock? Because he's quite 
Pen Haddo is one of the greatest unsung heroes of modern day polar travel. Yeah. He really is. He's done. He's the only person to ski to the North Pole from Canada against all those obstacles on his own without any outside assistance. I watched him set off from the edge of the Arctic Ocean on the first time I saw it. Um, the first time I saw the Arctic Ocean from the edge, it looked like a literal sleeping giant. And if you woke it up, it would destroy you. And I saw Penn setting off, and I got quite tearful thinking he's walking off to his death. Really? Because the feeling of being on the edge of the Arctic Ocean is it's a, you can feel Mother Nature's hands pressing very hard on your shoulders because it's cold, it's wild, it's very spooky. You feel like you've been watched by something. It's a really strange place, and I was I was wasn't envious at all that he was doing that. I think, oh, I could never do that. Really? Yeah. Would, would that be your limit? Would, uh, if you were approached to do that yourself by someone or funded? Oh my god, I wouldn't want to do that on my own. No, no, no. no. So that is your limit. Yeah, that, that's something you wouldn't entertain. Yeah, interesting. The, yeah, okay. the, those solo guys. I don't know how they. Okay. No, that's not my cup of tea. Mm. No. Um, so that picture, so the Times wanted a photograph of Penn, which was, was going to be a historic moment, mm. when he reached the North Pole from Canada um, on his own. Because Penn couldn't take one and send it back because he's not, you know, he's not te- technically minded and there was too many issues around the timing of when he lands there, they want the picture. So I had to create a picture that would show him on top of the world. So... I got a fish, a semi-fisheye lens, which it makes the horizon curve a little bit at the sides. Uh, so okay, it, so it's got a fisheye. Yeah? Fisheye. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, and they've, you increase that effect by getting higher and pointing the camera down more. So, I thought if I'm going to take a picture of a pen that looks like it's on top of the world, I need to find a piece of ice that looks pretty with a bit of snow and a bit of blue on. And I didn't. What I didn't realise was what makes a pitch is when I was up, the, up there on the stepladder rattling around pointing the camera down looking at Penn um, it actually looked like a globe and it looked like a piece of ice yes I thought my god I didn't expect that that was a nice surprise <laughs> and I just happened to be in a piece of ice that looked like Africa when it was distorted yes so um, uh, anyway that's that was all that I had that picture sketched out in my head before I left home did you really? So I knew exactly where to go, exactly the piece of equipment. I knew you needed step ladders. I knew where to get them from. And all I had to do was find a piece of ice. So that was it. That's incredible. So the idea was born way before the button was pushed. Yeah. So if I'm going to be really honest, and this surprise a few people, I stole that idea mm-hmm. from one of my photographic heroes called Galen Rowell, who had done something similar, but not quite as well. Sorry, yeah. Gail, sorry Galen. He's <laughs> passed away now. Uh, he did that on the world's most northerly beach in Greenland. Okay. Same kind of thing. I thought that's better if it's on ice, not on water. Um, so, thanks, Galen. Yeah, that is a, mm. an, in, an, in, an incredible photo I did. Mm. And I noticed there was the uh, the other picture you did, and I've seen this hung in a frame um, on a large scale, which is the um, uh, the, the the family that are, are chanting in their oh, yeah. sort of um, you know the, in their little sort of shack home. Tell us about that one, where it was. Oh, um, yeah, so I think that's probably probably the richest travel experience I've ever had. Um, there's, an in, there's a little village in northernmost India, that's far north as you can go in the Himalayas, called uh, Padam, tiny village. Mostly Buddhists, with some Muslims who 
uh, all in the same community. At the time, the only way in and out of that village was to ski up the frozen Zanskar River in winter. It's 150 miles, and that's the, that was the highway the villagers used to use. And it's at the bottom of a canyon that's as deep as the Grand Canyon. It's very narrow. And the Indian army were building a road from the regional capital, Ley, to Padam. And once that road had been built, that culture was going to evaporate overnight because it's cut off for eight months of the year by the Himalayan snows. There's no way in or out except on the river, which is quite dodgy because being on a frozen river, they're not always guaranteed the ice is going to be thick enough to hold you. And it's quite powerful, the river, uh, so it's not always frozen in the same places each year because of where the currents move and the waters move around. So it's... It is spectacular. So we had guides. We employed local... So local like roulette on ice. Well, yeah. it's not that bad because we had, we had local guides who well, know the river. it's not yeah. that, but, uh, you know, maybe it was only minus 40, yeah? yeah? <laughs> anyway, so we took it upon ourselves to get to the village and write about it and photograph it before that self-contained, beautiful little hamlet changes and becomes a modern village, which is always going to happen. It's very nostalgic and very patronising of us Westerners to think we can we it should stay that way because yes. that's not growth or development. Um, anyway, so that particular picture is in the village and the tenth day of every month, uh, one of the men gets all his mates round, all his male friends, into his house. His wife <coughs> cooks for everyone and provides them with tea and this stuff called chang, which is very, very, very strong barley wine. Okay. And they give them this prayer, which is about 300 pages. They share the pages out between them. So they've each got a word of this prayer. And they're all speaking it or singing it at their own speed over the top of each other's voices. It's a lovely sound. And the head monk is smashing the gong and throwing rice around. And his wife is getting everyone drunk. <laughs> How long does that go on for? It goes on for about five hours. Wow. And because I was, I, they were all dressed in their traditional clothes and I felt like even though I'd been invited there into this house by the owner yeah. I felt like I was you know dressed in r- red nylon from head to toe you know yeah because their clothing uh, you know obviously because they're sort of you know they, they make them clothing from the, yeah, yeah. It's like a sort of Mongolian sort of t- as I as I you know yeah. sort of um, you know interpreted it and sort of hand-woven materials. It was all very natural colours. Yeah, they look Mongolian. Yeah, they may have yeah. they may have some Mongol in them that's yeah. come over, over from the, you know, the Silk Road. I mean, it's a bit, you know, just harking back to the picture itself, it is beautiful and tonally it's mm. beautiful. Um, but anyway, yeah. Yeah, so I was sat in this room, uh, literally not terrified, but very aware that any sound I make is going to disturb them. Mm. I've got a shiny, expensive camera in my hand, which costs more than any of them will ever earn in a lifetime, so I'm conscious of that. I'm thinking, what are they thinking about me? This Westerner dressed in his flashy clothes and his flashy camera, and what on earth is he doing here? So I was far too afraid to make a lot of noise or move a lot, coupled with the fact that at the start of the expedition, I'd gone mental with my film budget, shot nearly everything without thinking, and only had, before I set off, I realised, crack it, I've only got an average of five frames a day for the next 30 days. Wow, okay. So I'm in the room. And how thinking, many should you have per day? I started off with 30 pictures a day. Right. Okay. And that's now gone down to five for the expedition part. Okay. 
So I'm in the room thinking, oh my God, I want to take more pictures. And I had to really, really, really wait before I pushed the button on the camera. Um, and days and days before that, on the, on the, on the river, I'd shoot five frames and then stop. Unless there was something amazing happened, I wouldn't take any more pictures. And the way I got around that psychological trauma as a photographer would be to take pictures knowing there's no film in the camera. That's how I got around Interesting. that. <laughs> Trick of the mind. Yeah. Interesting. But, but in the room, I only took five pictures. A, because of the sound it was making, the really noisy shutter, and they were chanting this lovely prayer. Um, I, you know, I just literally hid and just took five pictures. It's an amazing picture. It's a beautiful picture. I don't think I'll ever take a better picture than that in my life. Do you know what? I could see... I mean, yeah, it's your picture and you, you have the right to, to yeah, to, to, you know, say that. <laughs> um, to me, I can see it's unique. <clears throat> well, because of the subject, really. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the road's been built now, so that picture, you know, they won't be wearing... No. Well, I was going to say, up until that point, their, their contact with Westerners mm. must have been minimal to non-existent. Well, they had, even back then, that was 2001, they had very slow internet of a, of a sort. Right, oh, okay. You know, they could send and receive email, that was probably... Oh, okay. Um, you know, and there were people in the village wearing, you know, Chelsea or you know, Manchester United football shirts, so... Oh, right, not, so no taste whatsoever. No, no taste. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say you were superior in your shell yeah. suit, really. <laughs> uh, the, the road's there now, and, the, you know, it's gone. That culture's yeah. gone now. So that's... that's Great that I went there in 1999, touched by 2001, and did that. Now you talk about the uh, the noisy shutter in there, you know, not wanting to um, sort of interrupt them. Am I right in saying you've actually had in the past uh, hardware or certainly a camera made specifically or built to your specification for travelling? Yes, uh, 2010. I was on this really important Arctic survey expedition that was heading out to do a thousand mile transect f uh, from a point on the Arctic Ocean to the North Pole where scientists thought the oldest sea ice would be found on that particular transect. That strikes me as a massive ask in today's, you know, with today's technology and all the different brands and the fact your trips are being funded and, you know, this, well, when it wasn't inside out, there's sort of you know, high-end or, or sort of high-quality sort of, you know, clothing and so on, and yet you've still got to have a camera designed or built to your... Yeah, so... to um, a spec. Yeah, so when I've been on that caution before, the cameras are uh, difficult to operate because everything shrinks because of the cold. Things shrink when they get cold, and the, the tolerances inside modern cameras are not built to, to allow for that amount of shrinkage. So the lenses get really difficult to focus and sometimes they just stop turning and you can damage them if you try and focus them when it's that cold. The shutter sometimes goes up and doesn't come down and sometimes the colour balance, the, is the weight of the cold on the sensors is so much that the colour balance shifts to blue and you can't move it away from that. Okay. That's only happened once but I thought I need a camera that's not going to fail on me on this expedition. It's really important to have pictures documented of it, of the expedition and also of the sea ice. Uh, so I got Leica to build an MP for me, which is a completely mechanical camera. There's no battery in it. Um, because I, th I thought that if a digital camera stopped working, I need a backup. 
It's like a, your go-to, or is that the, the the only brand that would entertain some? It's a specialist. Uh, well, I knew, like I've got is they they have got a history of. Um, if, if you're a photographer, they are. They have a they they have they just you shoot with the like it, and there's an element of magic about it. Okay. Which I can't say there isn't because there is. <laughs> um, <laughs> Hashtag Leica. <laughs> <laughs> And they built this Leica for me um, uh, to take on the expedition, and it worked every single step of the way. Um, uh, and like I said at the start of the conversation, I can hold a piece of film in my hand. Did you just say Leica said at the start of it? <laughs> was that quite a slick little slip in there? That was a very bad that was one naughty. intended slip of the tongue. <laughs> God, you're good. And I thought you only uh, sort of delivered when it was freezing cold. Yeah. me. It's just quite cold in here. Um, now the fire's gone out. Um, so, yeah, now, now, and the other, other reason for taking uh, a film camera on the ice is f for archival properties. There's no, no one knows how we can archive images nowadays. In five years' time, the technology to archive digital stuff changes. And the only sure way of archiving a digital image is by printing it onto paper. So I thought I'd bypass that stage and have a few rolls of film that were actually um, could can stand the test of time, literally. Mm. So for that reason alone, that was a good enough reason to take a mechanical film camera. Have you still got that camera? I have, yep. And do you still use it? No. No, the commercial pressures on photographers nowadays. Clients want the pictures the same day. You can't do that with. But do you then not revert back to having the same issues? You know, like with breath and temperature and screens missing up or lenses f freezing over. No, or has so technology moved on. Yeah, so I've got some Nikon's now, that, and that's the technology's developed so much so that the batteries are big and they're robust and they work in the cold, and you can get them on and off the camera really quickly. Oh, this could sound really silly. I know when I go out uh, shooting and doing stuff out in the countryside, you can get those hand warmers that you crack and then you put them in your gloves or your pockets and they heat up. Surely they've designed a camera with one of those things so it keeps the camera at a sort of a, a better temperature so nothing mm. freezes. No, because no one takes Little business. idea there. Yeah, well, no, I, I did try doing that once years ago. I did modify a camera that had a heat. Melt the film or something. <laughs> no, no, it's too many cables. All right, okay. <laughs> too many cables. Um, but you don't need to nowadays. No. The, the technology is incredible. It's robust in the cold. It wasn't so good 16 yeah. years ago, but nowadays. You know. It's amazing how quick it, it, it and, and how far it moves in such a short space of time, mm. isn't it? Yeah. What, um, okay. We've had the last year and, you know, life's been lumpy, no guarantees, you know, we've all been stuck at home. What are the plans over the next year, two years, what's coming up, or certainly stuff that you're allowed to talk about? Mm. Well, I do have a really critical mission in mind, which is my own, probably, probably my magnus opus, my swan song, which is because the Arctic Ocean is being affected and changing so quickly because of global warming, it's, being, it's changing ten times faster than scientists predicted um so the five million square miles of arctic ocean sea ice that rests as a little white cap on top of the planet is actually melting really quickly and less than two percent of that five million square miles is now ice that survived more than one year that's called multi-year sea ice so and that's really magnificent stuff it's as the as high as this building, as big as this building, and it can last for 
the oldest sea ice isn't that old. It's only between 8 and 14 years old. It isn't that old, but it is magnificent stuff. Mm. It's completely majestic. Mm. And it's all going to be gone inside the next 10 years. Wow, that quick. Yeah. Partly because it's being melted, partly because it's being blown out of the Arctic Ocean by the wind. Um, there was a, a an ice bridge between Canada and Greenland, which didn't used to melt and break until August. Now that ice bridge that is a, a dam for the big ice breaks in February and trillions of tons of sea ice just get blown between Greenland and Canada now. So a combination of the wind and global warming? Yep. Well, okay. the, yeah, it's all... Which one's worse, the wind or the global warming? Uh, well, the global warming is melting the sea ice from underneath as well as from on top now. Right. And that... when that big ice is gone, I've only seen it once in 16 years of travelling up there, in 2,000 miles of living on the surface. I've only seen that multi-year sea ice once. So my mission is to go back up there with some scientists to document to um, validate the scientific data that says it's here, because it's all based on theoretical science. Um, if I can do that, it proves the science works, the satellites work rather. Um, take samples from underneath of the sea ice, because that interface between the sea and the sea, sea ice is, is a black hole in terms of scientific study. So we've got some serious sort of, you know, diving. Um, sort of there'll, be no, there'll be no diving, you have to drill or, holes or into the ice oh, okay. and pull okay. it out that way. Right, okay. Because you can't really dive... Well, you can't carry diving equipment on an expedition. No, okay. It's too much, too much stuff to carry. Um, and map it and put transmitters on it so back home here we can watch those old pieces of sea ice that are going to become extinct, quite literally watch them fade away. So you really are a conservationist as well, aren't you? You're not just an explorer and a photographer. <laughs> Your knowledge is vast and we've really touched on cameras, not that we were meant to, mm. but you've certainly... You know, even with that, you know, I've obviously got a huge insight and understanding and uh, are in support of the protection of almost. Mm. Well, you know, being sat in this room here with these lights on and, we, you know, we can't avoid not having an impact on the Arctic Ocean from here. People don't realise that stuff we do here doesn't just stay here. It affects everything on the planet. What could the layman do just to make that tiny... Or not make that difference, but what 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 part could each each little individual make? That little something they could do that collectively would would you know enable some form of positive impact. Just well, everyone if everyone saves as much energy as possible, like turning a light off in a room you're not in, or not leaving the tap on when you're brushing your teeth, or sharing a car journey, or getting a train when you sh you can instead of driving, or maybe you don't need to fly abroad three times a year, things like that. It all adds up, massively adds up. You don't yeah. need to have a have a massive life change. And yeah. Going vegan, of course, is an option, which I, I'm i not going to do that. that is You're not option. a vegan? No. No. No, but that is, that is a pretty... If everyone's vegan, they'd save a lot of energy and a lot of methane output from the cows. The only um, trouble is that would have an adverse effect against ecosystems with animals, wouldn't it, potentially? Yeah, it's a very, it's a really complicated thing. And it there's is. No, there's no one straight answer. Everything's like fine, but with, with that, it's almost like fine balance, isn't mm. it? And everyone to their own, but I think there's pros yeah, and cons. Yeah, you can't expect people to have massive life changes. No. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. I think we need to leave the problem-solving to 
policy and business to invest in renewable technologies and you know put really heavy fines on industry on companies that are emitting yes. co2 massively or you know pumping stuff into rivers or into the seas there the, all of that stuff needs to be i was gonna say the onus is always put on my terminology yeah. the little people yeah and never hitting at the top is it no you know and 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 that's where all the cash is yeah I find that quite. Yeah, yeah, we need to we need to bizarre. stop relying on fossil fuels. We really do. Yeah. I um. I think uh, I'd, 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 I I I could sit here and talk for hours <laughs> and hours and hours. And uh, do you know what? You are you're an inspiration. You're you're utterly incredible, and I feel totally in awe. And actually, you make me feel very amateur interviewing you because I think there's probably some people thinking, ask this, ask that, ask something else. <laughs> and I'm sure you, well, I know you've got reams and reams and reams of knowledge and I've probably just scratched the surface. Um, love you to bits. You're incredible. You said in one of your little speeches that um, when you're out on the snow, on the ice, most photographers get a golden hour, but out there you get a golden day. <laughs> yes. Um, all I can say is... Um, you have created a golden hour for us here. In fact, it's a little bit over an hour, but it's uh, all the more still golden. So I'm going to say, Martin Hartley, thank you very, very much indeed. Um, you are, uh, well, our theme in the pursuit of excellence, you are that personified, and you're an absolute legend, and I thank you very much. Well, thank you, Helen Hall, for having me. Thank no, you, Simon. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Um, we'll speak to you soon. Yeah. God Thank bless. you. Thank you. Cheers.